morning's scripture reading, uh, we're going to read a few different verses from chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. So please turn there. You can find this on page 828 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in uh, the black chair pockets or at the end of the aisles. If you don't have a Bible, please take one with you. Uh, they're our gift to you. Uh, so let's turn there, page 828, and locate verse 7 of chapter 8. And we'll begin reading. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And let's skip down to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake and yours he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now we'll check. To, uh, chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will provide and produce thanksgiving to God. This is God's word. Amen. So in today's world, a pastor can hire full-time consultants and access an array of resources, including in-depth, detailed articles in a very niche field, and that is communicating on the subject of giving money. I'm going to give you uh, two direct quotes from one of these articles. All right? At least once a year, uh, preach about money and its stewardship. Here's another. Do not preach about money only when it's initiated by a f- facility campaign. So I begin this series violating two cardinal sins <laughs> of talking about money talking about stewardship, talking about generosity. I've never intentionally preached on how God calls us to respond to what we've been given, other than when we came across it, reading through God's Word. A few years ago, in the Old Testament prophetic book of Malachi. And so in November of uh, last year, our facility and fund committee, seeing our, our sort of big need, recommended rolling out such intentional instruction about stewardship which resonated also with our elder team. So, all cards on the table as we start this here in February. The subject of stewardship has not made a cameo since 2011. And it all started with a recommendation by a facility and fund committee. All right, this is just the way it is. Going to be straightforward with you. And to be honest with you, our facility needs continue to heighten. Uh, Our attendance in children's ministry, the last two Sundays, were at an all-time high. All right, as people continue to, to meet on porches, and nearly, you know, out on a boat on the pond. We're almost at that point, all right? So while facilities needs were the first thing that initiated exploring God's word on this matter, God started to show me in the last couple months it's not the main thing. And the main thing is this, to seize the opportunity to embark together on an adventure of a generous life. To embark together on an adventure of a generous life. My only apology I'm going to make for doing this series we're doing in February is going to be that I didn't do it sooner. 
So the genius of generosity is far less about the financial needs of the church. In fact, in the last three years, just so you know, we've only had three months in the red as a church. So it's not about that. Far more, this is far more about helping you embark on a life of generosity in response to a generous God. That's what this is about. If you're skeptical or you don't believe me, that your life is our main concern, we will not concern ourselves this morning with taking up an offering. All right? These baskets aren't going to go forward. They're going to stay up here today if you want to give. All right? And I'm even going to encourage you to give somewhere outside of Sunrise this week. All right? That's up to you, but I'm going to encourage you that because this is not, this is not about Sunrise, per se, receiving income. This is about embarking in a generous life in response to a generous God. So I just want to show you that by what we do here. In the meantime, over the next month, we're going to explore 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which, which the Apostle Paul explains and unfolds what it means to lead a generous life, the genius behind a generous life, which is God's plan for all of us, by the way. Each week we're going to explore pieces of this plan, so I hope you had a chance to do your own sermon prep this week by reading over 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's what you heard and saw before the service as well. The churches at this time, the time Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians, churches that were all new, and they were all concentrated around one seaport, one sea area, the Mediterranean Sea. And so they all were like sister churches, because they were all connected. Think of the Mediterranean Sea like one big freeway. So people were always going back and forth, kind of seeing each other, being around each other. So every church was a sister church. They all started from the apostles, same church planners. We know from other references, the New Testament church of Jerusalem was struggling due to lingering effects of a famine they were experiencing, but also because Christians, they were often just abandoned by their Jewish families. So if you were Jewish, you became a Christian you were living in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, and you said, I'm going to trust Jesus, you were often kicked out. You were often not invited to family functions, not getting the inheritance that you were once promised because you decided to trust and follow Jesus. So the Corinthians got super amped to give, to pick up the slack, to be one of these churches, to ex- they express generous pledges. But over time, that generosity faded until Paul mails them a reminder and a plan. And he attaches along with it why it's so genius to give generously. So that's what we get here in these two chapters. Chapters 8 and chapters 9 of 2 Corinthians. This ingenious plan for why it's so great to live a generous life. In fact, these two chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the word translated as grace, charis, is mentioned ten times in ten different verses, making this the most grace-saturated section of the Bible. So if you love grace, you love the idea of God's love made active through an unconditional gift, when you hear generous God, that excites you. That, that, that makes something come alive in you. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is where it's at. The most grace-saturated section of the entire Bible is right here. And this is so exciting to me because at Sunrise we are all about grace being saved by this free gift that God gives us supremely in Christ, growing by grace, going back to the cross by being forgiven more, paradoxically, we grow more, and finally sharing this good news about grace with other people. We're all about that at sunrise. So this is so exciting to be going through these two chapters. 
So in the most referenced New Testament teaching for how we ought to give right here, we're reminded every couple of verses, no matter how much you aim to give or actually follow through with giving, nobody is more generous than God. God is the original giver, and no one can outgive God. No matter how much you give, God is always more generous. Isn't that good news? So we're going to focus our attention this morning entirely on this generous God because God bets everything, everything on his free flowing generosity, his reputation his human reclamation project, his plan to restore the earth. All of it depends on his free-flowing generosity no matter how others respond. He's going to give it. So I'm going to share with you three ways he gives to us. And then finally, why it's so genius that he does. Firstly, the first way he gives to us, all of us here, no matter where you are in your walk with God or how you feel about him, the first way he gives to us is he made us in his image. According to Genesis 1.27. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Ancient monarchs often sent statues or images of themselves to various regions over which they ruled. Right? So they'd have someone make statues. They'd approve it. That looks great. Get the other side of me. This is better. Then they would send it off to the land over which they ruled. Okay? These images represented the king, and they served as a constant reminder that the land people lived on wasn't really their land, it was his. The life they were living, the homes they were living in, weren't necessarily due to their own productivity, but the king's generosity. God has given us an amazing privilege. He has stamped his image onto our very person so that we represent him everywhere he rules, everywhere we go. We represent God. He gives us an amazing privilege. So whether we mean to or not represent him, you do. What does this mean, to be made in God's image? Well, it means that we're distinct from animals. I know a lot of you guys treat your animals like people. All right, let's be honest with you. Whether it's a dog, a cat, right, an agouti. <laughs> you give them names. Sometimes you knit sweaters for them. That's all great. I love it, but people are distinct from animals, and we see this in God's Word, in the immaterial parts of who we are, mind, our soul, our will, and our conscience, that part of us that knows, oh, this is wrong. So anytime someone writes a law, or, the, or anytime someone recoils from evil, an evil act, that's evidence you're made in God's image. You're acting a little bit like God in a way that animals don't, okay? So... Anytime someone invents something, paints a landscape, enjoys a symphony, you're a little bit like God. You're showing forth his image. Anytime someone makes a choice to go against what he or she would normally choose, like we hopefully do sometimes, right? That's a conscience. You're acting like God to a lesser degree. And that's what it means to be made in God's image. You act like God in all these ways, just to a lesser degree. Now, in the New Testament, Matthew 22, verse 17, some people ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I'll show you where I'm going with this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Taking a, a Roman coin, and he asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? Right, so everyone looks, they get a close look, and they say, oh, that's, that's Caesar's. That's Caesar's likeness on that coin. 
We have the same thing today, right? The queen on the coin. It's Caesar's. Jesus counters what? Say it with me. Render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And to God's what is God's. Now, we take this as a proof text. To submit to government and pay taxes, right? But that is not Jesus' main point. Jesus is so brilliant, he often makes two points, by the way. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark. He'll address your question, but then make a greater point, a more important point, a more to the heart point. And that's what he's doing here. Jesus' main point in saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. His main point is give to God what is God's. As a coin bears an image, so do you. See that? We think of this as, oh yeah, we should pay taxes. No, no, no. Jesus' main point is, you bear God's image. Do you give that back to God? God has generously given you a reminder that he loves you, that he's with you, and you get to represent him everywhere you go. So do you. Do you. That's the challenge there. Honestly, do I. (laughs) Everywhere I go, represent, show off the image of God. Most of the time, I feel like God should have chosen the statue, (laughs) like the ancient kings, right, to represent him. It's most of my life. Like when I tell Katie I'll be home by a certain time to grill something, to do homework with the boys, to give her a break because she's a school teacher, she's been with kids all day, and then our kids. And then I arrive home a half hour, 45 minutes later than I said I was going to. Man, I think, you know what, a statue would have at least been present, (laughs) Right? A statue could have at least been on the front lawn and be a pretty good goalkeeper, by the way, right? At least he would have been present. Me? Not so much. You know, when I choose to, to crack a joke instead of, you know, maybe giving someone a hug, an encouragement, or, or a listening ear, I think, man, you know, at least the statue would have listened well, right? <laughs> he would have sat there. Yet, he entrusts to us the privilege of representing him, even knowing we won't do it well. Isn't that amazing? He makes us in his image. He says, I want you to be the people representing me to the entire world. Human being, created in my image. Even though he knows we're going to do a poor job of it. Even though he knows we're going to fail. Amazing. He still does it. That's the first way God gives to us. Here's the ultimate way. He gives to us, Jesus. We see here that in, in, in chapter 8, verse 9. Read that with me here in your Bibles. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That might sound like a riddle, so let's work through it together. In what sense was Jesus rich before he visited planet Earth? He lived in a free-flowing generous relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't love of self and therefore selfish. It wasn't exclusive to one other member of the Godhead and therefore idolatrous. It was a community of self-giving, right? This triangle, this community of self-giving, free-flowing love back and forth and forth and back to one another. So that when he makes man... God doesn't make man out of a need to be loved or adored. He does it out of his free-flowing generosity. It's it's, it's been here in this community, and he just wants it to go outward even further. It just spills over. Think of it like this this tank that's moving in in this turbine that's moving at such a rapid rate. It just spills out. That's why God creates man. 
Not because he's needy to be loved or adored, some people would say. Because of his free-flowing love and generosity. How were we poor before Jesus visited planet Earth? We tended to only love self. And therefore, we were self-centered. We only loved and worshipped one thing. Therefore, we were idolatrous. So Jesus had this plan to include us back, to belong to the divine, free-flowing, generous love that never has any lack. See, if we only love ourselves and serve ourselves, that's all we have, right? I only have the things that I can give myself or I can get for myself. And as we all know, that runs out, whether it's with your talents, with your money, with how it even feels sometimes, right? You serve yourself, you serve yourself, and eventually it's like, I'm tired of this. This no longer gives me enjoyment. This no longer gives me pleasure. And even if you love one thing, which is worship, like we've been talking about the last four weeks, everyone worships something. So you give yourself over to that something, but what we eventually find is that thing can never satisfy you, can never fill your heart the way you look to it to do. And so we're poor, we're impoverished. Jesus includes us in a divine, free-flowing, never-ending love. To do so, he had to become poor. He left the confines of heaven, says that the love of the Father and the love of the Spirit were a little less tangible for him. And then they became a lot less tangible, as we learned about a month or so ago in the Gospel of Mark. On the cross, Jesus became an outcast. He became a misfit so that we could be made fit. He was kicked out of his community because he took the sin of the world upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God the Father made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So on the cross, Jesus took our sin and the punishment for it and the poverty that resulted from it upon himself so that we might become right with God. So we might become the righteousness of God. He took the punishment in our place. He became poor so we might become rich. He took on our self-love, that curved-in love, our idolatry. And in doing so, Jesus was cast out of the only community he had eternally known so that we could be eternally included in it. How great is that? So this is how, then, we know that we are rich. We belong to God. As we, spoke, we sung just a minute ago, the grace that brought us to the fold of God. We forever now belong to him if we trust Jesus. So let's review this. So far, not only did God make us in our image, make us in his image, sorry, knowing we'd represent him poorly, he gives us through Christ the gift of belonging to himself, even though he knew we would be like stray sheep, constantly trying to get out, constantly going our own way. Yet he still gave to us through Jesus Christ. All right, but it doesn't end there. There are still multiple ways he gives to us. Specifically, these super-empowered gifts from God the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. But as you excel, Corinthians, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, the gift of giving, the gift of generosity as well. Now, when you trust Jesus, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you to keep that free gift free-flowing, to keep that fellowship flowing inside of you and out to others. One way he is generous is to give each Christian superpowered gifts 
to enable you to, to generously include and strengthen others into the same divine community. It's amazing. These are called spiritual gifts, literally little graces. So again, it makes us in, our, makes us in his image. Incredible gift. Gives us Jesus so we can be included back into this community because we've wandered from him. And in addition to this, he gives us these like icing on the cake, these little graces, these super-powered gifts inside of us meant to help others get involved in this community. See how free-flowing this is? See how abundant it is? See how it spills over? It's glorious. Some gifts take what you were naturally good at and infuse them supernaturally by His Spirit. With other gifts, they're brand new. So for example, faith. All of us need faith to trust Jesus, or to, sorry, to, be, to belong to Jesus. But some people have this gift. Have you met them before? Of just trusting God so quickly and so easily. And they just act on it. And so he says this in verse 7. You excelled in faith. It's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12.9. Some people excel, or they have the gift of ability to speak or to teach. We see that here in verse 7. Look there. Also Romans 12.7. Some people have the gift of knowledge. We see that here in verse 7, but also in 1 Corinthians 12.8. In other words, they're all in these lists of spiritual gifts, and we see them again here. God gives these to help other people experience this amazing generosity of God, this divine community. And one reason I think these other two things are listed in chapter 8, verse 7 is because they too are spiritual gifts. This happens elsewhere, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 7, where a spiritual gift will be mentioned briefly, and then the author moves on. And I think this is happening here. So he says here in verse 7, in all earnestness, You see that there? That literally means a sincere kind of passion. I would translate that as zeal. Have you ever met someone who is zealous? Some people, you get around them, and they just motivate you. They're contagious. They're enthusiasm. You just think, man, I want to have lunch with that person again. Or you think, man, what community group are you in? Like, I want to to be in that. I want to do what you're doing. These are people with this gift, the supernatural gift of zeal. I think of Joe, Joe Ballmer, who just came up here and read for us. I feel like he's got that gift. Anytime you're around Joe, he's so encouraging about God and grace and how stubborn and great it is. Or my friend Reinhold, zealous. He's got that gift. We also see another gift here. We see this teachability. Where do I see this? Well, seeing this passage as gifts helps us understand the strange phrase, look here in verse 7, in our love for you. Paul is saying to them, hey guys, as you've excelled in our love for you. What if I said that to you? Sounds kind of strange, right? Justin, you've excelled, man, in my love for you, my brotherly love for you. Is that a compliment? What is that? How can you excel in someone else's love for you? And what Paul is trying to say here is that they've received the apostles' love for them, and they've responded. There's a teachability about them. They've said, we trust that you love us, and so we're going to listen to what you say. We're going to be teachable. We're going to learn from you and obey what God has to say to us through you. And there's a sense where that is, that is a spiritual gift as well, a teachability. I think of Christians in our church like Francois Bazinut, Sean Olson, Kelly Dager-Signy, Christine Dolbeer are, are people who they want to hear, they want to listen so they can know how to obey God. There's this teachability about them. What a cool gift. It's encouraging. 
They soak in biblical teaching from pastors, elders, leaders, and they're eager to apply it in their lives. See, God could do all this by himself. He could include us into his divine, free-flowing relationship all on his own. But he gives us this privilege to use us. He wants to use these supernatural powers. Amazing. Like superpowers. It means like every one of you is a Batman, a Spider-Man, a Green Lantern. Whatever it might be. No one wants to be Green Lantern, right? But whatever it might be. A gift. Superpower. He chooses to use those of us he's left behind as representatives on earth. Yet we tend to spend gifts on self-promotion and profit, don't we? Maybe you've used your super-empowered ability to think and speak clearly for yourself and for profit at your place of work. But not necessarily to teach and instruct God's Word to others. Maybe you're zealous in your business or in another life passion that you have. Maybe you're zealous about CrossFit or just vacationing in general. But not necessarily towards the body of Christ and encouraging them to come along with you to seek Him. Perhaps you're teachable and eager to learn when it's advantageous to you. Maybe to help your family's future. And so you'll, yeah, sure, I'll learn about you know, how to invest well. Or I'll learn about how to improve my house better. How to fix my car on my own so I don't have to pay for it. But as far as learning and receiving about the things of God, that's going to cost me something. So again, let me just review what we've come so far. Not only did God make us in His image, He knew we'd represent Him poorly but he still did it. Not only did he give through Christ the gift of belonging to himself, he did so knowing that we'd wander from him. And finally, not only does he leave us behind to represent him as his image, the body of Christ with super-empowered gifts, he did so knowing that we mostly use it on ourselves. That we mostly hoard the gifts and use it for our own advantage, not the advantage of others. Do you see the pattern here? God keeps giving. He just keeps on giving. Stubbornly, relentlessly. Even if we don't respond the way we should, He keeps on giving. God bets everything on His free-flowing generosity. I want to explain to you why this is so genius. So genius. Here's why. He gives compellingly without actually compelling us to give. He gives in a compelling way without actually compelling us to give. In other words, he doesn't make us give. He leaves us free to respond. But his stubborn, relentless, free-flowing generosity, it's going to get you one day. It's going to take hold of you one day. If you keep seeing it, if you keep being around it, if you just open your ears and your eyes to it. We see three movements of generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in a very distinct order. You see, God generously give, firstly, so that we're representing Him, we might generously give. So we see God generously gives, so that representing Him, number two, we might generously give. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are graced to show grace to others. To which, here's the third movement, God will then refill everything we need to pour ourselves out again. So He pours His generosity into you. And says, what will you do with this? And as we pour it out, he's always going to refill. So that you can pour out to others again and again and again, see? That's the movement we see here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's summarized here in verse 11 of chapter 9. Read that with me. You will be enriched in every way 
to be generous in every way. Right? So he's gonna, he is rich. God is. He is generous. You will be enriched. He's going to give to you so that you can be generous in every way. And then he's going to do it again. Rinse and repeat. That's the pattern. Paul recognizes how good this is, too. He, he recognizes that participating in the adventure of divine generosity is, quote, it will benefit you. He says that in chapter 8, verse 10. This benefits you. This is good for you. This is nourishment for you. And he preaches that right up to the edge, but he's unwilling to compel them. He's unwilling to force their hand and say, you better do this or God's going to get you. He doesn't do that. But how many of you have felt like that when you've heard about giving in churches? Paul refuses to do that. Well, listen how he gets right up to the edge, but he doesn't quite compel them. Chapter 8, verse 8. I want you just to see this pattern. I say this, but not as a command. Chapter 8, verse 10. Paul doesn't command that they give. Instead, he says they desired to do it. Even a leader named Titus, whom Paul appeals to go, hey, go help the Corinthians get together this collection basket. He's not forced to participate. But instead, we read in verse 17 of chapter 8, he's going to you of his own accord. In other words, even the leadership wants to be part of this adventure. Lovingly, willingly. Chapter 9, verse 6, look at that. So that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. What's an exaction? It just means that I'm going to take this from you because you are legally obligated to give it to me. Chapter 9, verse 7, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right, but willingly, cheerfully. Perhaps the most brilliant way, though, that Paul strongly puts before them the opportunity to be generous without compelling them is verse 10. Let's read that together. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. What he's saying here, if I could summarize it, would be this. Don't worry, God's going to give you enough to eat. Not only that, he's going to give you extra seed, from which we get the idea of seed money. Have you ever heard that phrase? Extra money to, to invest in starting a new crop. You can store it up in barns and banks, though you risk spoiling the seed. That was always an option. You might remember a parable Jesus gives to this effect of storing up seed and grain in a barn. You can do that, but there was always the risk for a farmer that that seed would spoil and be no good. And this is the image Paul's trying to give the Corinthian church. You could do that, or you could do with seed what it was made to do. You can reinvest the seed back into the soil. So you see here, he, he gives them complete freedom, but clear wisdom. You could store it up. You could put it in the barn or bank and just leave it there. Understand, it could leave you at any time. It could spoil. And we know this about money, don't we? 2008, I know for Americans, boom. Kept it in the bank for a long time. Kept it invested for a long time. I thought it was gone. Or you could reinvest it in something far greater that can produce a harvest of righteousness. Seed is for sowing. God will provide more seed, but it's up to you to save it or spread it. This is like the righteous man in verse 9. If you read verse 9 again, as it is written, he is distributed freely. You might think that has to do with God. If you read Psalm 112, the psalmist is actually talking about a righteous man. He has scattered freely, it can be translated. It's the idea of someone who just scattered seed. 
He's got seed. God's given him more seed. He scatters it. This is what it means to rightly use what God's given you, to be generous with it. But God's not going to force you. So Paul doesn't pull the pastor car. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about giving with them in a way that he plays a slideshow, right, if they're passed together with past pictures at, to the tune of, I can only imagine, as people start to cry. And remember, remember what God's done for you in this church? Right? He doesn't list what the money's going to specifically or how you might buy a hungry Jerusalem Christian at protein-enriched bar. That's, this is what your money's going to go to, and this is how it's going to help them, which are the typical things that compel us to give, Right? You see an image of a Jerusalem Christian crying on television, and you're like, oh my gosh, i got to give. Look at them. None of that. He does not want them giving based on guilt or even, here's the most remarkable part, on need, but based on God's free-flowing generosity towards them, totally on grace, and so that's what he holds out for them. God is so good to you. He's so loving towards you. Look what he's done for you and in you, even though you haven't responded the way you should or you were designed to do. That's why you should give. More important to Paul than the manpower they can bring, the gifts they can bring to the table, the financial resources, is that they grasp grace. He wants them to get a vision of how free-flowing the generosity of God is towards them. That's why you give. You know, I experienced two firsts one December day in 1990. I was 12 years old. It was the first time I loved art. It was the first time I can remember giving generously without anyone knowing it. All right, together. My father had taken with me, uh, taken him with me to, on a business trip to Chicago to see a Chicago Bears NFL football game. Fitting, today's Super Bowl Sunday. Iron Mike Ditka was the coach, if you know Ditka. Um, and Jim Harbaugh, if you're not familiar with that name, was the quarterback. And while, uh, while we were there, we reluctantly went along to the, the Art Institute of Chicago. All right, I think it was my mom's idea. She's like, while you're there, you better get some culture. All right, so we went along, you know, two guys in the Art art Institute, great. And you walk in, and there's signs everywhere and boxes encouraging donations to the Art Institute. And my dad, I think he may have given some some money. I don't know, he might have been pretending. I think he was, though. And and there's amazing art there. You go through, you got Picasso's, you got some of the greatest American works there, an impressive collection of all the Impressionists. But all that fell to the wayside when we dipped down into the basement of the Art Institute where there was the collection of the, if you've been there, the Thorn Miniature Rooms. Who's been to the Chicago Art Institute? You know what I'm talking about. You, kind of, you go downstairs, you see these little tiny rooms from every period of history, this architecture done in this little detailed, intricate style. Right? From like the 11th century to the 20th century in every culture you can imagine. As an 11-year-old who, or 12-year-old who was fascinated with Legos not a few years earlier, I thought, man, this is the coolest thing. I love this. How much time this took how intricate it was, how detailed. So much so that when we, we, we arose and we left the institute, we left the building, I reached in my pocket and I took the money I had, which was only five bucks, and I put it in one of those boxes to give to the Art Institute. Nobody knew about it. Well, until now. <laughs> but there's like a 25-year statute of limitations, right? I mean, like, <laughs> hopefully I still get my reward in heaven for that. But, but I was so taken, that is why, why I gave freely. Flash forward 12 years later. I'm living in Chicago. I'm taking Katie to the Chicago Art Institute. It's the first time she's been there. And immediately upon entering, we're whisked into this line. We make our way through the queue, and the lady at the counter says, would you like to make your donation by cash or credit? Would you you like to make your donation by cash or credit? Because this is how I'm repeating it in my head. 
And God bless this lady. I mean, she's just doing her job. And I'm, I, but I say out loud, like, donation? <laughs> I'm in line for a donation. Is that right? She says, yes. Like, huh. Like, what, what? I was like, interesting. That's all. <laughs> and so I tried to show off and enjoy this museum to Katie. But you know what? The bitter taste of a compelled donation stayed in my mouth the whole time. It had tainted the once free gift, right? So that the same amount of money, maybe a little bit more, was bitter to me. I didn't want to give again. I didn't enjoy all the beauty that was around me. Why? Because I was compelled to do it. Like the signs and boxes in the museum. Guys, as a church, we were, we're going to pass out an offering plate. Except today. We're going to be up front that we appreciate tithes. We're even going to teach about tithing. But may we never state, imply, give the impression that you've got to give or go home. That just stunts grace. It stifles the opportunity we want you to receive every time you open this Word of God to see and experience the beauty of this free-flowing generosity of God expressed supremely in Jesus Christ. We want to allow Him to move you. This is different, by the way, from every other organization, solicitor, or achievement charity. It's a risk to say, we just want to show you who God is. And then we trust Him to do the rest. It's a total risk, but it's His risk. To give you a picture of what a risk this is, I want to share this. God is betting everything on grace. I want to share with you a quick story that I heard as a younger man from a Lutheran minister. He shared how he had wrecked his dad's prized Buick 8 when he was 16 years old. If you see that car behind me, it's just a butte, right? Not too shabby, driving one of those around. You probably would feel a little bit you know, nervous parking one of those in our obnoxiously small, sometimes came in parking spaces. So he wrecked this thing. Not only did he wreck it, he was drunk at the time, as were all his other friends in the car with him. When he told his dad, the first thing his dad asked him is if he was okay. Even after he told his dad that he was drunk. Later that night, that, that, that young man, that boy, wept in his father's study. And after his sobs sort of trailed off, he, the father concluded, how about tomorrow we go get you a new car? How about we go get you a new car? The minister who shared that said he became a theist in that moment, meaning that he believed that God was real. It was not long before he gave his life freely to serve him. But that's not the end. See, he pauses, watches the audience, then shares. There are always people who get a little bit ticked off when I share that story. And they come up to me afterwards, they object. Your dad let you get away with that? You mean he didn't punish you at all? You know what he says in turn? He says, you know what? Don't you think I I knew what I'd done? Don't you know that that was the most painful moment of my life up to that point, telling my dad I'd wrecked his car? He said, I'd only experienced the weight of commands and condemnation before then. But at that moment, I experienced grace, and I knew God must be real. So I wanted to give my life generously to serve him. Let's pray. Father, over the next month, we're getting together to talk about getting the know-how and get principles for generosity. We're going to talk about why, why it's wise to have leadership to help guide us in that process. I want to give people a vision for how generosity regenerates and spreads grace everywhere. And with those grand goals, we spent our whole time this morning talking about you, talking about 
over and over and over again about the free-flowing generosity of God. Grace, grace, grace. It's because, God, you bet everything on it. You risk that your over and over and over goodness will one day pay off and that we'll see it for what it is and we'll want to live a generous life. So we're going to make the same bet as a church. We're not going to preach that for your tithes, we're going to give you a prosperous prosperity God as a get-rich-quick scheme. We're not going to give up on grace because we don't see it work right away in the giving column of our bulletin. We're going to trust that you are so good and so generous through Jesus Christ that we're going to wake up and want to be on this adventure of generosity with you. To your praise and glory, we say this. In Jesus' name, amen.